1: From the Milton Mets studio and IU's radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from WFIU WTIU News, and I'm co-hosting with Sarah Whitmire, the WFIU WTIU News Director. This week, we're doing an update on the coronavirus in Indiana and what's being done to prevent the spread of the virus. And we have... Three guests with us, Dr. Dan Handel is with us. He's Chief Medical Officer for IU Health South Central Region. He was here last week as well. Joining us also is Brian Shockney, the President of IU Health South Central Region. And by phone from his quarantine is Graham McKean, Assistant University Director of Public and Environmental Health at Indiana University. If you have questions or comments, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at org. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Facebook Live. And I should say at the start of the show that we have wiped down this studio with all sorts of disinfectants. We're all at least six feet apart. We're trying to practice what we're preaching here uh, to all of our listeners. So we hope you'll join us, because we have lots of questions and we'll have lots of good answers. So I wanna start with Brian Chockney. Brian, thanks for being here. Glad to be here, thank you. So we had some confusion last night, a little bit, um, about whether there's a case in Monroe County or not. And I think we've found out there is a case that has Present at the hospital, but it's not classified as a Monroe, Monroe County case.
2: That's yeah. correct. So, we are a regional hospital. We serve 11 counties in this area. And this isn't unique to uh, other hospitals around the state, but I think probably unique to this area. And this is all new to us. Uh, but wh- what occurred is um, an Owen County uh, resident um, had presented to our facility, uh, and we had uh, treated that that patient and then that test result was sent into the connection with the Owen County Health Department. So how it works is the health departments in the counties connect with the state health departments and those releases and information go through the county of residence of that individual, not the county of the hospital um, or health facility where that Uh, where that patient is so owen county released their statement in the morning that they had received that they had a a positive Um, we had um, as you can imagine in this social media life that we have things blasted out on social media and we had lots of media contacting us around this um, knowing that the patient was in our facility so we uh, had to release a press statement uh, at that point uh, to let people know that this was a uh, patient, we did have a patient in our hospital. Mm-hmm. I think people confuse that, that, um, you know, if. If our hospital is in Monroe County, it must be a Monroe County patient, and that was not the case. And this is not gonna be the first of this uh, type um, where we're gonna have uh, health departments in other counties who are gonna release statements about patients who are positive in their counties, but they're gonna be in hospitals and health facilities that are not in their community.
1: Mm-hmm. So what kind, of, um, you know, what kind of precautions do you take now that you have a patient there?
2: so this patient you talked about the clinical mm-hmm. precautions yeah, yeah this patient the second they walk in the door um, and we've been uh, doing what we call tracers so we trace this we watch this happen um, on all of our shifts to be sure it's occurring 100 percent of the time so when a patient walks in we ask them the three questions and i can just uh, tell you those three questions have you traveled to europe China, Italy, Iran, South Korea, United Kingdom, or anywhere outside of the country in the last 14 days. Now that just, everything's changing quickly. That just changed a couple of days ago from 21 days to 14 days. Um, and then had you, uh, have you had close contact with a person known, suspected or, known or suspected to have COVID-19 and the third question is Do you have a new cough, shortness of breath, sore throat, or fever within the past 21 days? So, every patient, no matter where you're at uh, in the clinic and uh, getting an x ray, anywhere you're coming to, any facility, you're asked those three questions. If you say yes to any of those questions, then we immediately mask the patient, which is what happened with this patient. And then we treat every patient as though um, they may have uh, COVID or be exposed uh, at that point. And then we uh, isolate the patient in a negative isolation, negative pressure room, where uh, we ensure no one else uh, can be contaminated. And uh, then once we determine that, we get the test results back, and we determine that that patient is positive, uh, we've already been doing all the precautions at that point. So once we uh, determine that they're positive, then we uh, make sure that the notifications to the family, we trace that back um, and we see uh, go electronic medical records are a good thing in our day. We can know every single patient or person, uh, caregiver who was in that room and cared for that patient. Um, our precautions, we do not have environmental services doing daily cleanings in these rooms. Food service do not deliver trays. Um, so we've really, you know, we really skinny back, the people who can be in that room, um, and other types of precautions. So it really a very limited number of people who have had contact with any patient that we suspect. Mm
3: -hmm. Dr. Handel, can you walk us through what happens if someone comes in who thinks they might have the symptoms and wants to be tested?
4: Well, you know, it's, it's really important that, you know, as Brian mentioned, we ask those initial screening questions, and the initial point of contact with patients is at a safe distance. So if they show up to our emergency department, they're six feet apart, you know, and to, as exactly Brian said, we follow the protocol so that they get the mask. And actually, if you look at the CDC criteria at this point, if both the person with the concerned symptoms puts a mask on and the people taking care of that patient wears the mask, um, it is it is it's safe from that perspective. So we don't have to quarantine those healthcare workers as long as both people are wearing masks. So I think we talked about this last week, and so much has changed over the past week or so, that this is a contact droplet precaution virus, whereas, and the difference between that and a respiratory precaution virus is that as long as there's not a procedure that's being done that is throwing a lot of um, particulates into the air, wearing a surgical mask, not an N95 mask, which is a higher filtration, is sufficient, along with goggles and contact precautions. So you know, once we have someone who's either suspected or actually is confirmed for COVID-19 in the hospital, as long as we maintain those precautions, the patient is kept safe and the people taking care of that patient are kept safe as well.
3: But can you, I know last week you did not have the ability to test people at the hospital. Has that changed?
4: We are slowly getting to a point. So last week is, I would describe as kind of phase one of testing. So only tests could go through the State Department of Health. Right now, we're kind of in phase two, so we have limited internal testing capabilities. The problem with that is because of still the limited capabilities, we can only test high-risk patients and high-risk individuals, and what I mean by high-risk patients are people who are sick enough that they, they warrant admission to the hospital, and that's usually due to the fact either it's age or other comorbidities um, like heart disease, lung disease, um, and a suppressed immune system, and so forth. So. One of the challenges right now, I know there's a lot of people out there who want to get tested, but because of the limited testing capabilities, we can't fully open that up to Mm -hmm. everyone at this
3: moment. So so when you do a test, can you read the results at the hospital, or how long does that take? You send it to the state?
4: Well, so with our internal testing capabilities, um, it takes 24-hour turnaround, and the reason is because any sample we send, which is a swab of the nose, gets sent up to our central lab for IU Health in Indianapolis. So it's not an immediate, I can tell you in an hour, it's WE DO THE
2: SWAB AND WE'LL HAVE THE TEST RESULTS WITHIN 24 HOURS. AND SO WE ALSO PRIORITIZING OUR HEALTH CARE WORKERS. SO ALL healthcare WORKERS IN THE STATE OF INDIANA can also be tested as a priority in addition to those priority patients because those are our two concerns right now and that is that phase two phase three of testing is the general public and we see that as um, other countries have got that up and running and once they get that up and running and it won't be long before that is in place probably in indiana lots of great work going on behind the scenes with our companies who produce this and 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 healthcare, uh, facilities as well so uh, it won't be long to be into phase three graham i wanted to ask you, um,
1: to put in perspective the the numbers that we're seeing now, I think we, we all anticipated there would be a lot higher numbers as testing came more on board, but, you know, the numbers are doubling quite rapidly. Could you sort of put this in perspective for us?
5: Uh, yeah, I think it's exactly what we kind of expected and have seen, and, and just for some comparative uh, numbers here in Indiana, as of uh, midnight last night, at least at the state, they'd tested 554 people. And so you can see that trend line going up here in Indiana. I think we're now at 79 uh, confirmed cases. and um, Whereas maybe a place like New York, last I checked, which was 24 hours ago, uh, they, they tested 22,000 people in the state. And so that's kind of exactly what we've expected uh, to see some of these case increases as testing expands. And um, I would just prepare everybody to, to, to continue to see that. Uh, and you're right, we did double uh, our numbers just yesterday, deaths in the U.S., just... Uh, went up by a third yesterday, and what's got us, I think, more concerned uh, than previously was the last two days and 24-hour periods globally over a 1,000 people have died, and we're, we're already about halfway there for the day, and it's right at noon, so um, that is a concern, but we're going to continue to see that, and I think the biggest message we have in public health right now, because we don't have a treatment, because we don't have a therapeutic, because this, this illness is so broad and has Uh, pretty broad spectrum of symptoms from you know being able to be transmitted asymptomatically or preclinically, all the way to death Um, it's really kind of a perfect virus in that regard but we're out of tools right now to contain it other than what you're seeing in terms of mitigation and and now suppression potentially I think it's the, the ultimate way to go so we've gone from you know this containment which obviously Uh, the lid is off of that Uh, this is uncontained virus and the testing will help us determine scope and distribution and and maybe we can get back towards containment but in times like that that's when you move to mitigation that's what we've seen with you know school closures telecommuting um, you know gatherings canceled uh, keeping home the high-risk folks keeping home those that are exposed or those that are ill Uh, but i think really now a lot of the experts of what we're seeing from things like the imperial um, college of london model that came out last week is uh, really just need essentially a lockdown of sorts, um, uh, a suppression uh, of, of, of the pandemic. And that's essentially what countries like China were able to do in, in Hubei province and things like that. And, and you could really see um, our, you know, our ability to do that is a question our concern maybe on its own. But in the last two days in, in all of mainland China, there have been no new local cases. Um, so it's going to take an effort like that. Uh, Coordinated effort and for quite some time, we believe now, uh, to really um, just limit the spread and limit the impact of our health care system because that's really is what all this is about right now.
1: Can you uh, further define suppression? What would that look like?
5: Well, that would be a good question. So, right now, I, you know, we're trying to, we're in this mitigation phase, and it's uh, unfortunately. Um, the way it's set up in the United States, and, then, and that's a good way in a lot of things. Uh, in terms of uh, the states and locals ruling, the local health departments being our local health authorities, uh, oftentimes that that works out great. But for something like this, we really need broad coordination, and so it'd be kind of just kind of what I described. Whereas, <clears throat> excuse me, um, staying home basically, but not just the high risk people, not just the people that are ill or that are exposed, but everybody. So basically, everybody hanging out. Um, We're going to go to a trend, I think we have to, uh, in order to to address this, uh, to go to, you know, 100% essential personnel only. Uh, New York State uh, did that just before we went on the air, um, and other states are implementing similar things. And so, really just going to essential personnel, uh, and this, unfortunately, could be a very long game. It could be several months, it could be much longer. Some of the modeling has shown you know maybe we need to do this until there is widespread therapeutic or vaccine available and so um, the biggest message i think we have in public health is is to to understand that realize that this is kind of our new normal for quite some time unfortunately um, and doing all of our part i.e staying inside and not going out as much as in public as much as possible uh, is really going to be the best way to, to combat this issue until we have better tools and options
3: we're getting a lot of questions coming in. I wanna to go to this one from Kate Dashwood on Twitter. This is something we've actually gotten from a lot of people who I think are relying on grocery delivery and food delivery. Is that safe? Um, they're thinking about just different hands touching it, um, things that could get into the food potentially.
4: Uh, uh, I, I guess I'll start. Okay. Um, you know, I, mean, I think obviously there's certain hygienic principles that have to apply when you people prepare food, um, you know, and you know, as long as you're maintaining a safe distance, you know, it's limited contact to others. I, I, I think that's reason, that's reasonable. And I hopefully, I can't speak for all the um, food preparers out there, but, you know, hopefully restaurants are screening their own employees and so forth. That is, so if people are not well, they're being sent home. I mean, I can tell you personally, that's what my family and I are doing. You know, we're picking up our groceries. We're doing takeout. You know, it's it's a balance. Obviously, we need to, you know, we need to maintain and normal life is possible and there's a lot of a lot of restaurants out there that are definitely suffering in the Bloomington community. So it's I, I think it's a, it's as far as we can tell, it's a safe and responsible way to, to do things moving forward. I think it's the big risk you run into is congregation of large numbers of people, which is really kind of the setup.
3: So it can't necessarily and Graham maybe you know it can't necessarily be transmitted on the packaging
5: I, I don't. I wouldn't say that's impossible, but I think it's. It's the risk is is pretty low. It's, yeah. I think it's really about these face-to-face interactions mm-hmm. being uh, within the, <laughs> that six feet of someone. Now, not to say that when I, I ordered some Switchyard Brewing, um, no offense to Curtis Cummings who delivered it, I, I did sanitize the outside of the cans prior, <laughs> prior to use and things like that. But are hard surfaces, and so there was a good study uh, from the NIH. Uh, that was peer-reviewed, and I think it ended up in the New England Journal of Medicine last week that uh, showed it, it, it on porous surfaces, it doesn't survive as long, maybe maybe up to 24 hours on cardboard, but some of these surfaces in these packages, um, it's, probably, its survivability is probably pretty low. Now, we are learning it can maybe survive up to you know three days or so on, on hard surfaces, stainless steel, plastics, and that kind of stuff. Um, so, okay. But, uh, I, but I, I think overall, the risk is pretty low.
4: Yeah, and I think that I mean it kind of gets back to really kind of getting back to the basic Essentials of good hand hygiene. You know, being really intentional every time we prepare food, we're ready to eat food that we do del- um, very detailed hand washing for a full twenty seconds.
2: And I think it, you know, it, 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 we've had to do this with education and with our healthcare workers, and just in our my my wife and I as well. Uh, just being more cognizant of things that we do uh, on a regular basis that we should not be doing, that weren't probably good practices prior to to this. And so just looking out for each other and watching each other and reminding each other of, hey, wait a minute, Um, don't touch that door handle. Or did, you know, you just got gas. Did you clean your hands after getting gas with hand sanitizer? Or... Um, did you cl- wash your hands before you eat? Um, handing things back and forth, your social distancing. I think if we all just educate ourselves around that and then we remind each other of that, then we'll, we'll, we'll get better practices and, and we can help s- uh, stop this spread within our households even, though we, even when we are you know, secluding ourselves in our, in our uh, homes. But we just really need to be looking out for each other. Just a quick follow-up to that. I think we
1: asked it last week too, but I want to get that answer out here because we had another question about it. Should citizens be concerned about U.S. mail or packages delivered by UPS or FedEx being infected?
4: No, and I think you know Graham touched on it just a minute ago too. So it's the same principles apply. I mean, I think the distance and time make our regular mail pretty safe.
3: Okay. Uh, Brian, uh, Marcy is wondering how many negative pressure rooms the hospital has to accommodate the level of isolation you described earlier?
2: Yeah, so let me first start with uh, how we prepare. We're we're under what we call incident command. And that is something that after 9-11 was, uh, it's a Hicks uh, health, uh, process that we put across the nation um, and so that allows us at a system level and then at the regional level to connect we're lucky that this hospital that our hospital here is part of the IE health system because that's a larger system that with resources and connections so we can inventory we've got inventory at all times now we have inventory of all the ventilators all the negative pressure rooms what what staffing is where and what areas and so it's allowed us to know where we need to improve our negative pressure rooms or increase those and we actually uh, over the past week have increased those so we always have negative pressure rooms for patients such as this and and other types of diseases but we've been able to ramp those up just in the Bloomington Hospital alone we've been able to ramp those up about 300% um, by bringing devices in that can um, make more rooms at negative pressure is what we call that, and so we've got plenty of capacity at this point um, to care for uh, care for them. And then every day during our morning briefing, we have a, a we have three briefings a day uh, with this incident command. It's twenty four seven, and um, we brief on those numbers. Our negative pressure rooms, uh, we'll be bringing up more today even, um, and the number of ventilators that are in our community in our state, um, how many are on them currently and uh, so so this is a this is an hour by hour and uh, three times a day report on where we are and then we have a a, an electronic uh, dashboard that we know all these things currently running at any time so uh, we've we've been really able to mobilize a great deal of our negative pressure that we need for patients and if we would need them
3: okay you um, we've heard a lot nationally just about shortages already that some hospitals are starting to face but you said right now everything is okay but how prepared are you for some of these projections that, yeah that
2: that's seen? so we are already um, out there looking at those projections um, I just want to say thank you uh, to our IU colleagues our uh, business colleagues around the state and around this region they have all reached out to us in 95 masks. even we even had a car dealership who had N95 masks and has a supplier that can help us. And so we are uh, getting a lot of support from our community for our what we call personal protective equipment or PPE as we refer to it. Um, and so we are every you know every day, um, but three times a day at a minimum, we're looking at our usage and what we have in stock. In addition, IU Health several years ago put in an integrated service center uh, in um, a warehouse near, in a suburb of Indianapolis. And so we've got a large, what we call cash supply of uh, su- not only these supplies, but many other supplies that healthcare providers need and our, our system needs. So when this began, um, and we knew it was becoming, coming to the United States, we were able to build up those supplies. And so uh, we use a red, yellow, green um, on each of those supplies that are PPE. And uh, we've, we feel confident right now now that we've got what we need projecting out however um, we do not know um, what the future holds we're hopeful that uh, we're ahead of the curve here in indiana the governor's declared several things that are important and and our county officials and city officials and i think we've got to we can mitigate it uh, more so than other states because we're ahead of the game from where other states were and, and countries so uh, we have what we need but you never know Uh, this is all new to us and so we are taking uh, all that we can and uh, getting all that we can Uh, and uh, the health department here the the monero county health department they had uh, a supply of uh, personal protective equipment that they kept on hand for situations like this as well and they released that to us Um, and so penny and her team have been fantastic to get that to us um, and we can use it here regionally so that's it's it's just been great.
3: I have one, can I ask one more follow-up? Sure. We did get a question from someone wondering, like you said, that right now you have the capabilities. Someone's wondering, should I just go ahead and get it now if I'm going to be exposed to it? Does it make more <laughs> sense to get it early? You mean get the, <laughs> get get, the virus?
4: I, you know, I'm thinking back to when I was a kid because I was in the pre-chickenpox era. Um, yeah, and there were people who did that. The problem is you don't know how you're going to respond to it. You know i mean there, there's some studies now coming out that even younger people can have a significant reaction to it so i wouldn't i think the best thing to do is to try to protect yourself and not get it at all realizing that based on the models that graham had mentioned that the chances of a widespread um, of this in indiana are, are significant so i mean i think there there is no upside to trying to get it sooner rather than later because you can still get sick from it well,
5: All right. we definitely don't want people. Trying to get this uh, right, um, absolutely. As, as both, both everybody said, and, and and not only just because, yeah, some people do still. reason think this is mild and and for some people it is right but just their ability to continue the spread and the transmission and and that's where people need to realize that even healthy people have a very significant role in this and while we think that the fatality rate is much lower than we're seeing but the global case fatality rate now is four percent the case fatality rate in italy right now is 8.3 percent nearly 500 people a day are dying in italy right now so this is not to be taken lightly and not something to just go out and try to get
1: all right, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be answering a lot more of your questions in the second half of the show. We'll be right back.
0: From the Milton Met studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIUNews. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUNews.org.
1: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from WFIU and WTIU along with Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. And we have three guests with us talking about coronavirus. We have Dr. Dan Handel, who is the Chief Medical Officer for IU Health South Central Region. Brian Shockney, the President of IU Health South Central Region. And Graham McKean is joining us by phone. He's the Assistant University Director of Public Health Public and Environmental Health at Indiana University. If you have questions or comments, give us a call at 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9338. That was 817 817- sorry about that. Um, So that's, yeah. And we're probably not gonna put you on the air today. We've just got too many questions that are coming in. But we do have one caller who did ask a question about dealing with the health of undocumented immigrants. Can somebody answer that?
2: Yeah, so we care for everyone who comes to our doors, um, no matter what. And so if someone comes to us, We don't even ask about their status, who they, you know, as far as immigrants, uh, undocumented, um, diversity, it doesn't matter. Um, If you have a need, you come to our doors, we care for you. And so we would treat them as we would anyone. Um, so we would ask the same questions and we would if they need interpretation services uh, we would get those uh, they would go through the same screening process and they go through the same care process and we would care for them until they and follow them until they uh, were at the end of, of their uh, care. Uh, better or and if we needed to get them shelter, we're working with uh, local um, local organizations for shelter for people who do not have shelter uh, so that we can uh, support them as well. So um, you know doesn't matter who you are, every person who comes to us, we're gonna we're gonna care for.
3: And this is sort of a follow up to that just in terms of what happens after you treat someone. Um, So this Paul is wondering what are your testing procedures for movement of patients between senior centers and IU hospital and vice versa to make sure that there's containment of COVID.
2: Yeah, so uh, we've really, in the past week, been working with our, um, at the state level, Dennis Murphy, who's our president and CEO of IU Health, has been meeting with um, the Nursing Home Association for the state, along with our Indiana Hospital Association, and with the governor, talking about this very thing, because we've heard stories about um, the you know, the nursing home population and how this can be devastating to them. So we're actually got a really, we've always had a good handoff process from the standpoint of uh, when a nursing home is going to send someone to us, we get the records, we do, we talk to them about the patient, and then when we're getting ready to discharge a patient, we do a, what we call a warm handoff, where we make a phone call, we talk to them, we uh, ensure that, um, that they know who's, you know, the patient's coming and, and all about them. The nursing homes also have representatives that um, have access to charts and they can get the information uh, so they know about that patient. You know, we know that that's not 100% perfect. So because of COVID 19, we've really been intentional about making sure that we're making those contacts and that those questions are answered. Very clearly before uh, a transition, and uh, we also have uh, two or three different contingency plans. So let's say a nursing home patient can't go back to that nursing home because maybe they tested positive for us. We don't have that currently, but if that would happen, uh, then where do we have an alternative place for them to go? And again, that gets back to our inventory of beds um, and inventory of resources in our region. We have Morgan Hospital, Bedford Hospital, and Paoli Hospital, and so we have the opportunity to take those patients to other hospitals where they can um, get, you know, they, they may not need hospitalization for inpatient care, but we have units where we can take care of them until they're at a point and the nursing home is at a point where they can, uh, they can go. All right. Here's another question
1: that's come in about just
2: what, how do you classify a
1: confirmed case? I mean, is that something the state department
4: confirms so it's basically the positive test so it's uh for the lab people out there it's a pcr test um so it says if it's positive or not so -hmm. that's that's how we go from a suspected case to a confirmed case
1: okay so when you know again when we're talking about numbers and reporting out numbers confirmed cases are the ones that have been fully vetted and we're aware of those this is correct
2: yeah and we you know and so the numbers of um tested patients are gonna just continue to skyrocket as we go into this phase two of testing. And then when we go to phase three of testing, even more. So really the uh, the number we wanna pay attention to is those confirmed cases.
3: A lot of hospitals are coming up with backup facilities or plans to put non-COVID cases in another part of the hospital. Is there any other location that you all are looking at?
2: There is, we've got several locations, again, We we as a requirement of our being a hospital, federal you know, federal uh, certified and Joint Commission certified, um, we have to have these backup plans in case of a disaster. So, what if a a, a tornado would hurt some of the part of the hospital? What if there was damage to part of the hospital with water? We have to have plans in place that we can activate on a moment's notice and take patients to another location. So, we not only have our surge, our our, what we call phase one of our surge plan is just the beds that we have in our region. We have phase two, which is the beds that we have across the state of Indiana for IU Health. Again, another great thing about IU Health size and, and its capacity. And then phase three is that uh, th- those partners in our community. And we've had so- several reach out to us and, and other locations where we can uh, take patients. One of those, um, Chancellor Vaughn at Ivy Tech, um, they have nurse training, uh, they have a sim lab. Um, so we're talking about those nursing home patients. If they can't go back to the nursing home they have everything set up and simulated like uh like a, a hospital right so uh, it really is an opportunity for us to partner with our community partners with very low risk those patients have you know they're not covid 19 patients but they can't maybe go back to the to the nursing home or, or go home or something of that nature so lots of uh phase one two and three beds and capacity uh opportunities for us so yeah we've uh, thought through those and these are plans that we've had to have under our incident command structure uh, in place for many years
1: another question um that again it's probably similar to some we've asked before but since it came in i think it, it a lot it might be on a lot of people's minds do grocery items we buy at the store need any special treatment when we bring them home they could have been previously handled by who knows who
4: well i mean i i think you know, when I get fresh fruits and vegetables, I rinse them off. You know, it's like any like we should have been doing before. So, as we mentioned earlier in the hour, I mean, it's I think it's no different. It's the same hand hygiene, the same um, um, common food preparation that we do for any grocery.
1: Okay.
3: Okay. Um let me think which, one, which other ones we should be going well, to Let me you give our numbers, ahead,
1: our numbers and the way to reach us, 812-855-0811 or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. We have a producer who will take your questions. And you can also send us questions, news at indianapublicmedia.org. And you can follow us on Twitter and contact us there at Noon Edition
3: someone at uh, Susan wondering if you get the virus once can you get it again with a within a short period or at all G- Graham maybe that's you
5: uh, I, there's been some cases in other countries where they've they've either seen a biphasic infection or maybe somebody that's caught it twice that doesn't really seem to be that common or known yet um, and probably not super likely but it's something we really want to know about this virus is uh, is there conferred immunity if so how long is that if it's going to Kind of be um, have some slight mutation of variants like a a, a seasonal flu, you know, is this going to be a vaccine we have to get annually? I think those are all things um, that have yet to be really answered. Okay. But things I definitely want to know.
3: (laughs) Uh, Another person says she's listening to the advice to stay at home. She has been staying in, she's going to stay in for 14 days. Wondering if then when testing becomes available, should she get tested? And if so, where would, at that point, where would you go?
4: I, I think it's really if you, only if people have symptoms, you know, I mean, if you have no symptoms, still the chances are pretty low of you having the virus. So I, I think we got to be really careful that when we get to phase three of widespread testing that we're not inundating these these public testing locations and people who are otherwise feeling well. Um, you know, still stay home. I mean, just because we have testing doesn't mean we can suddenly go back out and do what, things how we've always done them. So it's really, people are symptomatic. And I think that's really important to, when we have the widespread testing so people can know, okay, I have I have COVID-19. I need to self-quarantine here on out. Or I don't. I have some other common cold or flu or something like that. So people can really start differentiating the symptoms they're having, whether it's COVID-19 or not.
1: We talked a lot about where you get information and, you know, with social media, there's a lot of stuff that, that, Sort of flies around. We've had a question come in. Sources say, sources say, IU Hospital um, Bloomington has a number of patients sprinkled throughout the hospital that potentially have COVID 19. Is that true not
2: true so we have uh, patients that are uh, under surveillance that uh, we the, the time they walked into the they they screened positive for you know to be putting them in isolation putting a mask on them and those numbers will continue to increase for those that we do suspect we have cohorted those patients uh, t- going back to our negative pressure room so we created a whole wing that is locked down that is for these patients and we're cohorting all of those patients on that wing what does that do well, a couple things it does. Number one, if I'm a healthcare worker, I'm not going from one patient to a next, uh, and and I'm my focus is specifically on COVID-19, and we can keep them up to date on the latest techniques and tr- you know, treatment and those kind of things. It also allows us to make any uh, modifications to the room. There are some minor modifications we're making to those rooms, um, that such as uh, some IV uh, poles outside of the room, so we have to check the IV and medication frequently. Well, that every time we walk. In that room, that's a susceptible opportunity to to touch that patient, or and you're and you're also putting on PPE and you're taking it off. So there's another use of that precious resource we're trying to conserve. So those kinds of things that you wouldn't normally see in other parts of the hospital. And so we have a cohorted space uh, wing of the hospital where those patients um, are are going. And I will say. We have, uh, you know, people get into healthcare because uh, they, they care for people, it's, it's part of who they are, it's their, it's their personal mission. And we have uh, team members who are stepping up saying, I, I volunteer. I, I want to be that person who's caring for those patients, um, and when some of us might think the opposite of that, uh, they're really stepping up. So we uh, are are having no problems staffing the, the the unit with those patients. It's uh it's pretty amazing.
1: Mm-hmm. Graham, I wanted to come back to you and just ask for a follow up. You know, I think uh, worst case scenario, people think that if they do test positive, they are a confirmed uh, carrier of COVID-19, that it could be a death sentence. You'd mentioned the 8% in Italy. What you know? What makes it 8% in Italy and what is being done here that might make it lower than that now?
5: And that's, that's a great, great question. And again, um, you know, four out of five cases will be what the WHO considers to be mild, but also uh, the WHO uh, considers mild to be walking pneumonia, basically pneumonia without hospitalization. And we are again learning, um, that younger people are beginning to seem to get more serious illness. Now, young people are still not dying. Um, and I think with Italy, um, now that you've seen the measures they've taken, I think a lot of that has to do with their, their culture and their society. They're very, um, you know, open and, and and together and gather and also the age range and the, and the older populations in Italy, I think, um have played a role in that number uh, i don't think it's necessarily getting more aggressive or virulent or, or or deadly but um at the same time the the global case fatality rate which just is a fatality rate over a period of time or during an outbreak has been steadily going up for a few weeks um so i think that's something to pay attention to and so that's that's again why i think we all just need to act uh one take it seriously act like we are infectious essentially and even going back to that thing about going to the grocery store and stuff, you know, really trying to maybe designate one person in your household to do those kind of things. And maybe some of that person is lower risk, which at this time, uh, unfortunately, is my partner because I have hypertension. I'm, I'm technically at higher risk for serious illness. Um, so, you know, limiting who, can, who goes out um, and how often you go out and how many people you come in contact with, that'll really just help reduce some of those exposure chains and transmission uh, potential. Um, so so much left to learn about the spectrum of illness and yeah a lot of people that we've talked to or we know about um, you know they, they recovered just fine uh, but you really uh, as, as the others said earlier you really don't know how this is going to present in you and there's really no reason to find that out and so therefore that's why we're, we're preaching the, the stay home approach until further notice.
3: Everyone seems to be wondering how long this is going to last. Um, Curious, how are you addressing that with the hospital staff?
4: Um, Go ahead. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, I think, you know, clearly other parts of the world have hit their peak like China, but there's no clear indication that the U.S. has gotten even close to that point. So, I mean, in our preparations that Brian mentioned, we're really thinking long term here. Um, You know, obviously, we're hoping for the best, but we're preparing for the worst. And really, we need to keep doing what we're doing now until we see clear indications otherwise that it is starting to abate but there's unfortunately that's the problem is there's not a clear indication of exactly how long it will last
2: At our briefing this morning I introduced uh, this is our temporary normal Um, so it's not our new normal Uh, we know we're going to go back to normal operations someday Uh, but this is our temporary normal so it's not a drill it's not we drill for these things twice a year these these big incidents Um, And that's why we do it but we also have at least two and three layer deep in our incident command structure. So the other thing we talked about this morning is uh, handing off to our secondary. So I'm handing off at the end of tonight to my chief operating officer who will assume incident command for for the uh, system. So uh, our region. So um, we know that this is gonna be long-term. We don't know how many weeks, but we are prepared for that and ensuring that our team gets rest and uh, that our team uh, looks at this as the temporary normal.
4: And I think one of the big reasons we suspended our elective surgery is not only at the governor's um, request, but it also it is able us to marshal resources and team members to help support and backfill as we address this in the weeks and months to come.
1: So I heard a report last night on uh, one of the national news shows, and there's been some, some news about uh, hydroxychloroquine as a a, a malaria drug and as a potential um, drug that could reduce the viral load in COVID-19 patients?
4: I have, uh, I mean, we have a call shortly after this with our system uh, infectious disease specialist, um, and we'll get an update, but I have not seen definitive evidence yet, so I think it's probably a bit premature. But, I mean, we'll see kind of as the literature comes out over the next couple of days and weeks if that is a um, a legitimate treatment.
1: Uh, the, the physician that was on last night, it was actually CBS News, said, actually recommended to patients who think they might have it to ask their physician to put them on, uh, on that drug because it couldn't hurt
4: them. I mean, with any medication, it's all drugs are not benign. So um, I think you need to really look at the individual and see what's the risk of them taking it versus the benefits. So I mean, I, 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 once we get a clear sense of what the benefits are towards COVID-19, I think people can make much more informed um, decisions with their providers.
3: And how is the hospital working with the state? You mentioned the governor's orders and things. How involved are you in advising the state
2: yeah so um dennis murphy our president ceo of iu health um uh, tory our uh, legislative director for iu health uh have met with the governor um, they've had direct conversations and they're in continuous contact um, we have an Indiana Hospital Association that's also part of those discussions. Um, and so, you know, being the largest healthcare system in Indiana, it allows us to really mobilize things quickly across the state. And it also allows us to uh, gather data now that we, you know, our, our, we have a really strong IT, uh, you know, kind of data repository. So we're able to pull this stuff together and then provide data to the state as well around. Uh, what we're seeing and, and uh, use of supplies and all those kind of things that, that, that's helpful as well. And I will say, um, you know, our partnership, Indiana University and, in, and University Health, um, we have, as I told our team, um, we have some of the greatest minds in the world. Um, in in Indiana University and Indiana University Health. Um, And we can feel assured that, you know, that they're looking at this stuff continuously, Graham and others, um, and they're keeping us informed and then we're keeping the state informed as well. Um, I think we're also lucky with our state health commissioner just fantastic um, at, for such a time as this, she is she's in the right place at the right time.
3: Can you speak to what's being done in some of the rural areas that IU Health also has clinics in?
2: Same The same thing we're doing here. Um, so every clinic, uh, uh, again, it's what we call standard work. So no matter where you enter a facility, the same standard work applies, same questions, same screening, same treatment. Um, same uh, negative pressure rooms, uh, all of that in every facility that we have.
3: So they have the same resources, Same, they have ICUs, ventilators? Those well, it so depends,
4: yeah. yeah, it depends. So like they're depending on the hospital and no two critical access hospitals are the same. So for example, Bedford Hospital does have a small ICU. Um, so we would, we would use that. I think one of the other great resources that we're starting to leverage on a large scale is um, virtual visits like telemedicine. Mm-hmm. So if you are going to go see your primary care provider for your annual checkup, we may be able to do that via telemedicine. So w- at, while we're scaling back our elective procedures and everything, we're still trying to maintain that continuity of care for our patients. and anywhere we can, where we can um, switch it to a televisit, we're doing that with our patients so that they still get that care, they get the refills or the medications. Things don't stop just because we're in self quarantine.
2: On well, the other piece of that is IU Health You know, stood up. We were the first to stand up the televisit, the vir- virtual visit for screening, uh, free to all patients. And uh, as of this morning, we've done over 7,000 patients uh, in Indiana who have been uh, screened through this virtual hub. Uh, we have one of our reporters called Greene County General Hospital,
1: and so we have one uh, short bit of information from them. They confirm they are completing a limited number of tests in accordance with CDC and ISDH guidelines. Hospital says a variety of equipment is required to complete a single test. Recently, the hospital has implemented a drive-through procedure for tests in an attempt to conserve personal protection equipment and limit staff exposure to the virus. And, you know, that drive-through testing is part of their larger plan to try to stem the, the spread. So yep. we have yeah. that from Greene County. Um, I don't know how many questions you have left, Sarah. I, want, I, I think there are three things that I really like to talk about in our last five or six minutes, and that's testing, treatment, and vaccines, because those are all you know long range things that are really important to us getting back to normal. So Graham, I want to start with you. I mean, just in terms of, you know, where are we now with testing? Where are we with treatment? And what about vaccines? How far away are we with those things?
5: Well, testing, as as we've all, I think, established here has has been, was slow, was delayed. We had issues with that. That is expanding. Um, So that's gonna help at least, again, to find scope, prevalence, and eventually we can get back to containment uh, once it becomes more manageable. Uh, Treatments, uh, you mentioned the the chloroquine, you know, an old anti-malarial. I've kind of heard some mixed results on that so far, personally. It's been used less and less uh, due to growing resistance for malaria, but might have some uh, promise there. Uh, One thing I didn't catch anything about yesterday uh, in the the press, but didn't get to see it all, but it it sounds more promising from what I've been able to see is another antiviral called uh, Remdesivir. And I believe it was initially uh, starting to be developed during the SARS outbreak, and then was no longer lead, needed because some of the tight controls that stamped out that outbreak in 2003, uh, but later used for MERS, and I think even more recently for Ebola. <clears throat> and so that one might have some more promise, um, but I also have heard there's, I mean, there's at least 100 clinical trials for treatment and vaccine um, starting or underway globally. Uh, I think a trial could take a year i think we're still you know 12 15 18 months uh from any kind of widespread deployment of a treatment therapeutic or vaccine um and so that's why you know some some people fear that we might be seeing these kinds of other uh, social distancing and mitigation and suppression techniques until that time um so I, I i think it's kind of a long game obviously um and if and when that, that does come out you know we'll do pretty similar things to what we're doing with these drive-through testings um, uh, centers. So it's kind of based on what we call a pod, a point of distribution. And so these are plans that we have had in place with counties and locals and states and others uh, where we can you know, distribute medicines, therapeutics, antibiotics, whatever, uh, to a mass group of people. Maybe that'd be following an outbreak, a bioterrorism attack or whatever. And we've used that model for some of our own mumps outbreaks and things like that on campus in the past, but you, we might um, have to set those up uh, and be in conjunction with all of our, our local and state partners to roll that out uh, when that does become available.
1: Okay. Doctor, anything to add to that?
4: Hi, I think Graham's absolutely right. I mean, I, you know, the studies I've seen is about a year to year and a half out for any viable vaccine. And then it gets back to does the strains mutate over time and how do, does this become similar to how we address flu on a yearly basis and trying to predict what are the most likely strains from one year to the next, but I think it's too soon to tell. Mm-hmm.
3: We got a question from John. He was wondering what are the steps for making a vaccine.
4: Oh, I'm an emergency physician. I can't tell you that one. So, uh,
5: <laughs> G- Graham, I don't
4: know.
5: Yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> Outside of our no, no, skill no, no, set, I have there. A or, yeah. uh, or even a degree in public
3: health. He, he, the second part of his question is 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 that the, that development of a vaccine the biggest fear about COVID 19?
4: So, I, I'm not sure. The
3: lack of a vaccine is that what makes it. Um, so is that why we're talking about it so much? Is that why it's so dangerous and we're warning so many people about it? I
4: think it's kind of how do we prevent this from happening in the future is really the big question, right? So, um, you know, it would be one thing if this was a mild virus, but, you know, obviously uh, people are dying from it um, in certain populations and stuff. So we're trying to figure out how do we not a year from now have the same issue. So, I mean, obviously a vaccine with viruses and then also some of the treatments that people are looking at. We're just trying to figure out how to break the cycle.
5: Yeah, I think a right. big part of that, too, is um, not only to the lack of treatment, but the fact that this is new. Right. Um, and therefore, you know, 7.6 billion people are susceptible. Now, that's it's becoming less over time. And, and there will be herd immunity from this eventually, uh, either through a therapeutic or or infection. Right.
1: So we have less than two minutes to go. So I guess I want to give each of you a chance to, you know, last, you know, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you have, you know, individuals who are listening to this do? And is there something that you really need? That you need help from, you know, government or some other entity, business, Brian?
2: Yeah, so I'll start. Uh, I think first of all, follow the advice of the experts. Um, don't get your advice from social media um, or news. Get your uh, get your advice from the CDC, from the United State Department of Health, and your county health departments. That is the that's the best current. Uh, knowledge you can get regarding uh, how you can prevent this disease and and uh, the spread of the disease so just making sure that that's you know that that's what we're we're doing as a, as a group as far as needing things um, right now um, we are in good supply of what we need however we are looking at what happens next and uh, actually when we we're standing in your hallway someone came up to us and said that uh, we were talking about what I saw as well in Kentucky where some people are making masks um, and ha- how could we mobilize uh, over the airwaves some people to do that and put that in place if we get to that point point? and so those are the kind of great things that are happening so what do we need we need more ideas like that we need people to to join with us in this fight and uh, be successful okay
1: 10 seconds each gonna have to limit
2: you I'm gonna real quick out of the ordinary um, we're running low on blood
4: So while people are isolating themselves, our blood supplies around the state and around the country are running low. So the American Red Cross has opportunities for people to go and donate blood. So please do so if you're healthy. Okay, Graham, last 10 seconds.
5: Stay at home, act like you're infectious, follow the guidance of public health officials, and there's no, not a better time to help each other, especially those in high risk. And there's even you know, Bloomington Mutual Aid for COVID-19 Facebook groups. There's community groups forming, uh, so stay in touch.
1: All right, thank you very much. I wanna thank Graham McKean for joining us um, by phone, and Dr. Dan Handel, as well as Brian Shockney, the president of IU Health South Central Region. For my co-host, Sarah Whitmire, for producers Bento Boutier and Emma Atkinson, and engineer Mike Paschkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for
0: listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana.